If you have your Bible, turn to uh, Psalm chapter 19, please. Psalm 19. This is round one of Year of the Bible or God's Story. So uh, we're going to read from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll pray. David's the author of this song or psalm, which, by the way, C.S. Lewis on his notes on the psalm says that this is one of the most beautiful songs written in all of history. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies show his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak, and night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard and yet their message has gone throughout all the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. And it bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. And rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. And nothing can hide from its heat. Unless you live in Boston, of course. And he says, verse 7, The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. Father, we thank you that as we open this book, it's your story, it's God's story. We pray that you would revive our souls this morning. That you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, from your divinely authored scriptures. And you'd show us your power, and you'd show us your wisdom, and you'd show us your love. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I was, um, the Bible's one of the reasons why I didn't want to become a Christian. Um, growing up, son of a divorced home, divorced family, um, in one home, we practiced Mormonism. And um, the Bible was an important book about as important as and on par with the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon. And I, I knew that it was important enough to read it so that I could get points with God. But I never did because it was boring and I had other things to do. Tecmo Bowl was huge when I was in junior high. <clears throat> All the Gen Xers know what I'm saying. On the other hand... The other home that I grew up in wasn't Mormonism, but it was hedonism. So we didn't use the Bible much or didn't need much of the Bible because um, my dad kind of just did what he wanted to do. He was a Catholic that practiced on Easter and, and Christmas. And um, when he got saved or he came to meet Jesus, all of a sudden the Bible was a big deal in our house. Big enough to where he encouraged me, encouraged strongly to read my Bible. And now I felt like I was being forced to read this book that I thought was so boring and I had other things to do. And so it was surprising to me that at the age of 21 in 1996, I'll do the math for you, I'm 35 now. At the age of... <laughs> At the age of 21, at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, I came home after a night of drinking, drugging, partying, and I was pretty loaded. And on my bed, I sobered up so fast, and I, had a, I knew that there was, uh, I had a sense of destiny, and I had a sense of foreverness. And I got up and I got that same children's Bible that I had when I was a kid that still had pictures in it, Bible roulette 
opened up to the first page and said, God, they say you speak to people from the Bible, so speak to me. And from Isaiah chapter one, it was though Jesus came into my bedroom and was talking to me himself. I got up and I flushed my stuff down the toilet. It was expensive, I just bought it too. Then the next day I went to my dad's house who happened to be a dare officer and told him that I had been involved in a life of just uh, pretty much defiling everything he was teaching. And I said, can I go to church with you? And I went to this church and they taught the Bible. Well, I went, I, I, I was completely overwhelmed by the words of this book now. But I was working out of town. I was working construction to pay for college at that time and I took some, a break off of school and I was working and... And so I was away from Christian community, really away from any Bible teaching. And after a while, I began to really doubt. Have I become a Christian just to turn a new leaf for more morality? Because it's not paying off. Because all my friends are not doing that right now. And I just turned 21. Like, you're, when, at the age of 21, you're supposed to not turn a new leaf, right? That's not supposed to be till later. So... I went to a pastor that was local in the area and I said, you know, um, I'm having a lot of doubts. I'm having a lot of doubts about being a Christian. I'm having a lot of doubts about the Bible. I wasn't really reading my Bible, but I had a lot of doubts. And he said, and I was waiting for something really profound that would change me. And he said something really profound, profoundly dumb, I, I, I thought at the time. He said, Anymore, I've come to doubt my doubts and believe my beliefs. And I thought, what, the, what does that mean? That doesn't help me at all. I need something tangible. I need to know why this is God's story. I need to know why this is real. And over time, God started to real, reveal himself. He used a community of, of young men who um, had just graduated from Bible college who I could definitely connect with and they started to show me this is the word of God and they started I started to see from their lives how the word of God had a powerful effect and it was true and it was living for some of us in here you've seen misrepresentations people that have read the Bible a lot and that have invested their lives in mastering this book but you've seen that for some of those people, they're more judgmental and maybe more self-righteous, self-consumed, and in some cases even, I don't know, um, prejudice towards other people that don't read this book. For others of you, you've said, I've tried to read this book. I mean, it's week one. I've tried my hardest and I'm already falling off the wagon of a year of the Bible. But I feel, I, I just can't. And you feel depressed and discouraged and out of sorts with God. Part of it is because it's a, that's a form of self-salvation. I do this so that I could earn favor with God. And that's not the gospel either. So then the question that we should ask, the next few weeks we're gonna talk about um, what the central story of this book is and how to read it. But I think before we start talking about what and how, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why should I center my life on this book? Why should I give my attention to this book? And David, in this psalm, 
he gives a few reasons. David's got this whole warrior poet thing down. And C.S. Lewis, as I said, says it's the most beautiful song in all of scripture, probably in all of history. And do you know what this psalm speaks of? This psalm says we should center our lives on this book, God's story, because God speaks. David says, my God is the living God and he speaks. He talks to me. He speaks in all of creation and he speaks actually in this written word that David calls the the law or precepts or in verse seven he says, the instructions or the law of the Lord is perfect. That's the first thing that David says about this book, God's book. God wrote a book. God speaks. And the way that my God speaks, David says, is perfectly. The first thing that we learn about this book is that it's perfect. It's inspired by God. That's the language that is used uh, by theologians, that it's inerrant. It's completely without error. That doesn't mean that over time as uh, the original documents were copied that there was maybe some scribal error. Those, anything that happened has never taken away from the message or the words that are written in this book. David says concerning the Torah, concerning the law of God, primarily the Old Testament, but metaphorically or, sim- or symbolically for the entirety of scripture, it's perfect. Now, somebody says, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that you believe that this book, you take it literal, this is the words of God? Wasn't it penned by men? And you say it was God that penned it. Yes, both. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3. Paul the Apostle says, of speaking of Scripture and the nature of it, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what's true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to, to do every good work. In this passage, 2 Timothy, when he says all scripture is inspired by God, it's literally the word theopneustos, which put together means breathed out by God. As though God, as just in the same way that he breathed into Adam in the beginning, God was breathing, speaking the words of scripture. In 2 Peter, turn to 2 Peter if you can. Oops, 2 Peter chapter 1. I would encourage you to bring your Bibles, by the way, in the next couple of weeks. We'll be looking at a few scriptures. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says, verse 19, because of that experience, uh, you must pay close attention to what they wrote, the prophets, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, and Christ, the morning star, shines in your heart. Listen to this, verse 20. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit 
as they spoke from God. What he's saying here is that when he uses these words, they were moved along by the Spirit of God. It's similar, it's the same phrase that's used in Acts when uh, the Apostle Paul is stuck on a ship and the ship is moved along in the ocean by the wind. Paul says in the same way that a ship as you see in our beautiful artwork, is moved along by the wind in the water. The Spirit of God has moved along these prophets' hearts, leading them, guiding them. So was God dictating these words to these men? Was he just divinely downloading words for them? No. These men, in their personalities, God used them to author this book. This book is not co-authored, it's authored by God. This book is not human collaboration with God making revisions. This book is not uh, God giving ideas that human authors put into words. It's not as the Quran dictated to men as for them to write it at that moment. It is the inspiration of God, not dictation. It's inspiration by God's Holy Spirit through the perspiration or through the efforts they're actually writing of men. People were providentially, one author says, prepared by God and motivated and superintended by the Holy Spirit who spoke and wrote, these men did, according to their own personalities, their circumstances, their places in life. But they knew at that moment as we read in scripture, we'll see in a second, that they were writing something supernatural, the words of God, and not men. God wrote a book. God speaks, and his word is perfect, David says. In the New Testament, the biblical writers knew that they were writing Holy Scripture also. It wasn't just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well. Paul told the Corinthians, for instance, the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says that he had the courage to give them a commandment from Jesus and put it in his own commandment alongside of the other words. He says, uh, uh, the things I'm telling you from the Lord. Paul quotes the Old Testament as holy scriptures when he says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Speaking of pastors and how they can earn a living, they should earn a living from the work that they do. Then he quotes Jesus in Luke, and says, right along the side, Paul also says, and the laborer is worthy or deserving of his wages. He adds to the words of Jesus and says, here's what Jesus was saying to that. Or he's, he's being inspired by God to make an addition to that. Peter also compares the letters to, of Paul in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and says, just, and some of the words of Paul, Peter says, are hard to understand as some of the other scriptures are. So Peter likens Paul's words to the rest of scripture as well. Now, someone might say, you mean to tell me that you take the Bible literally and yet you use uh, proof only from the Bible? And anyone who knows or who's ever seen that historically masterpiece of a movie, The Da Vinci Code, knows obviously that in 4th century AD, Constantine, in a power play, in a political play, in an effort to establish his own rule, gathered the church fathers together and decided which books would be in 
included into the, the canon. The canon is a word that's in Greek, uh, means uh, measuring rod. And it's the way that we measure what's truthful and what should actually put, be put into scripture, what was included into scripture. And then the Da Vinci Code, the book and the movie, uh, Dan Brown, the author, says that it was Constantine that decided on which books of the Bible should be, specifically, which gospels should be included into the book based on his own political and power efforts. Which sounds really appealing and convincing if it wasn't for history. Now before I give two reasons why that's not accurate and why the Bible is perfect historically and culturally, I first want to say it's not because we don't believe or we don't believe that the Bible is perfect because of historical and cultural accuracies, although it is. The biggest reason why we believe the Bible is perfect or God-breathed or inspired by God is why? Because Jesus says so. And if Jesus is who he is, if he is Lord, as C.S. Lewis says, he's either Lord, he's a liar, or a lunatic, a raving madman, because he affirmed the validity, historical, and cultural account of Scripture over and over again. When he was tempted, how did he respond to Satan every time? It's written in Deuteronomy. He quotes the Old Testament. On the time of his cross, what does he say? He calls out to God. He quotes scripture over and over again. Just read your Bible. I won't go into it. Jesus affirms the validity and historicity of scripture. But the Bible's perfect also historically. Um, C.S. Lewis says about the language of scripture, it's up on the screen, I've been reading poems and romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them like this one. Of this gospel text, there's only two possible views. One, either this is reportage, men were reporting details. Because at this moment, um, even ancient Greek literature didn't use the details of the story. That didn't happen until about 300 years later. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. <laughs> and in kind of a pompous, uh, he's a professor, so he's a little bit pompous. So he says, the reader who does but professors earn the right to be pompous. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. <laughs> historically, not just literary, but historically, the Bible carries incredible weight and incredible accuracy. David says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Years ago, something that really helped me during the time of wanting to know why should I give my attention? Why should I even center my life on this book? I, rem I memorized a, an acronym that one author had put out there. It was pretty easy. I'll give it to you today. It's the acronym MAPS. The first letter of that acronym has to deal with manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence is... Um, important because it shows us 
the better that we're able to work back to the original copies or the original documents that were written. And the closer that time span between those copies and the original, the less likely that any serious error would occur. So most biblical scholars say that what we have in our hands in a textual form of course, uh, the, those who copied the manuscripts, the original autographs, as they're called, took painstakingly processes, painstaking processes, to copy that. At times, copying one letter at a time, the Hebrews would copy a word and then stop, and then at times they would wash their hands because it was holy scriptures. It was a long, arduous process. So it's very important that we have the manuscripts and the evidence to show that this, in fact, is the book of God, God's story. At this point, we have over 14,000 manuscripts or fragments from the Old Testament. Some of those date back to 800 to 700 B.C. Um, those were put into a book. It was, it was canonized into... Um, the Septuagint is the word, uh, a Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures 200, 250 years before the birth of Christ. Therefore, any prophecy or any detail in relation to the future coming of Christ was already complete 250 years prior to the coming even of Jesus. Um, the same is true for the New Testament text. If you look up on the screen, that we have a graph there that shows that the oldest um, works of history that are non-biblical, Herodotus, Thucydides, Caesar's Gallic Wars, they happened, apparently, were written around 144 BC, and they weren't copied. We don't have the autographs or the, the, the manuscripts of those books until 1,400, 1,000 years, 1,300 years later. Whereas, the earliest manuscript that we have of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, is within 40 to 60 years. That's completely unheard of. Paul's letters, within 15 years they were written. It greatly cuts down on the margin of error for Scripture, particularly for manuscript evidence. Archaeologically, that's the A in maps, the evidence is overwhelming. I'm just going to quote to you from Dr. William Albright, who was one of the premier archaeologists of his time. He says, The excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by certain schools of thought has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of numerous details. Now, when I was younger, I said I grew up in a Mormon household. Ultimately, the Bible is this, it's God's story and it's all about Jesus. But what I later understood was from particularly the school of Syracuse, which is a, a leading thought in archaeology, they've come out to say, we find no, we have found zero evidence of archaeology within the Book of Mormon. Actually, we have found evidence that would overturn and speak the other way against it. For the Bible to be, to um, show that uh, uh, Kings such as Belshazzar, um, uh, the, the coinage that was used, the places used in, or it's mentioned by Dr. Luke and Acts and his Gospel of Luke all show the historical evidence for Scripture. I'm going to 
breeze through these fairly quickly for time's sake, I would refer you to um, the Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, um, Tim Keller's The Reason for God. They're very good works on the accuracy of Scripture. The um, P in maps is for prophecy. As I said earlier, the prophecies related to Christ were closed 250 years prior to his birth. There couldn't have been additions to that because they were already penned. And we have the manuscripts in Greek known as the Septuagint for that. So for Jesus to fulfill any prophecy is completely statistically improbable. The fact that Christ was descendant from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fact that he was born in Bethlehem, which is a very tiny uh, town. The fact that he was crucified. You cannot predict the way that you will die. Crucified between two thieves. The piercing of his hands at his crucifixion, Psalm 22. The soldiers gambling for his clothes. His burial among the rich. That Jesus predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. Furthermore, uh, cities and, and, and uh, the overthrowing of major kingdoms, Babylon, uh, Syrophoenicia, uh, Tyre, and Sidon, all was predicted in, prophecy, er, in Scripture, and it's happened, completely fulfilled it. So the S in maps is statistical probability, and the statistical probability of those things happening is outrageous. Something like 10 to the 14th power. Now, I had to give you my age earlier to help you with math. That's as far as I go mathematically. So you can do that math on your own. Or ask Pastor Tyler at the end. He'll help you out too. But what this is essentially saying is the Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages by over 40 authors. And it has a single unifying message that God wrote a book and it's all about Jesus. And the, redemption, the redemptive work of Christ. So historically it's accurate. Culturally, and this is my last little um, apologetic piece for you because I think it's really important. It really helped to solidify my understanding that this book was breathed by God like a ship along in the ocean. Now, Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says, you know, most people in our modern age don't really have a problem with historical reliability. Like, yeah, anything's possible. This is postmodern era. If you want it to be true, whatever. What most people have a problem with is the cultural issue of the Bible. Thinking that, you know what, how can the Bible be true when it's so culturally regressive? when in some places it seems to subjugate women or condone slavery. How can the Bible be true? What he says is what most people find problematic is that the Bible seems to be culturally removed from their world, outdated or repressive. But then he gives three helpful ways that we can read scripture. When you come to a place where it seems to be culturally uh, irreconcilable. First, he says, and I put these in my own words, and then I'll define it what he says consider the complexity of the content that you're reading. 
The content that you're reading right now is complex. So in other words, it might not be teaching what you think it's teaching. Take the subject of slavery, for instance. A lot of people take the text, slaves obey your masters, to think that the Bible condones slavery. But what Keller goes on to show is that in the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. It didn't have anything to do with social class. Doctors in those moments were, 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 uh, they were hired in some cases in what, we, what the words used as are, were slaves. They traveled with the people that they worked for, like Luke, for instance, uh, was a traveling doctor. Um, Some think that Luke wrote to the person that he worked for as what we would call slavery in Luke chapter 1, known as uh, the person that he was writing to, Theophilus. And what Tim Keller says is that from a financial standpoint and from an ethnic standpoint, it it wasn't like our modern form of slavery, of Uh, the gross brutality of the African slavery. It was nothing like that. So we have to consider the complexity of the text that we're reading, which a good commentary can help to uh, help us to understand, to understand it's completely removed from our cultural context. He says, uh, most important all, very few slaves were slaves for life. They worked. It was in most cases like an employee works an employer. By contrast, the New World slavery was much more systematically and homogeneously brutal. It was like chattel slavery, which slave's whole person was the property of the master that he or she could be raped or maimed or killed at the will of the owner. In the older bond service or indentured servanthood, only slaves uh, in their time and skills were owned by their masters and they, were, they only worked temporarily. African slaves, however, was race-based. And it's the default mode was slavery for life. Horrific. So we have to consider the cultural context, or the, the, the uh, complexity of the content that we're reading. The text. Also, he says, quickly, consider the complexity of your culture. What he says is, Consider that the passage that bothers you most might be the result of thinking that your culture is superior than others. So, for instance, he says, think about the term regressive in itself. It implies that we've arrived. Our culture is better than others. But guess what? Your great-grandma and grandpa's culture thought it was the one that arrived too. And every other culture behind it was regressive. And in 50 years from now, or when you're a great grandma or grandpa, guess what? Your grandkids are going to look at you the same way you looked at your grandparents and be like, I can't believe they thought that. Because we have a tendency to think our culture is the one that has arrived and has the answers. Lastly, he says, consider the big ideas. In other words, distinguish between the main points, what's really important in scripture, life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and the fact that other things are, are not the big ideas. So in other words, take the issue of gender issues, which there's differing agreement upon in Scripture as a whole. To say that I can't agree with the Bible because of what it says about gender issues is to think narrowly about Scripture 
Whereas the big part, the whole part says it's all about Jesus and there are issues of where uh, it's, it's as much about Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection as it is about helping the poor and helping widows. But the big picture is about him. So to say that I can't get with, I can't agree in the Bible or believe in Christ because of, I don't agree with these issues of gender. What we have to do is say, if Jesus is Lord and he's not a liar or a lunatic, he believed in scripture, then I have to take him and his view of scripture, which is that the word of God, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. The second thing that David says about the law of the Lord is that it's powerful. Look what he says in verse one. He says, not only personal and perfect, it's powerful. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. He he starts to say that God speaks also through creation. Every day, creation is speaking. The stars, the sky, the sun. I mean, dude, every day in Santa Barbara, it's amazing. That makes me sad, actually. (laughs) It does. What he says is God is speaking, and then he uses the sun as an object lesson. Now think about the sun for a second, and how this power that God speaks through the sun alone. I was learning about this. Um, There's a picture up on the screen. Did you know how many suns that you can fit, how many earths you can fit into the sun? A lot. That's the earth right there, that little speck. You see you? That's you right there. You can fit 1.3 million earths in the sun. And yet, the sun, as a star, it says, for that it's just an average sized star. That there's far more enormous sized stars out there. The red giant beetle geese has a radius of 936 times the radius of the sun. The largest known star, VY Canis Majoris. <laughs> Is that major dog? Thought to be between 1800 and 2100 times the radius of the sun. Francis Collins, who is now a known Christian, wrote the book, The Language of God. Um, He himself is a theistic evolutionist. He believes in an old earth. He says that he's also a Nobel Peace Prize winner. He worked with the government on uh, the human genome theory. Um, And he says, this earth is finely tuned for human life. And as a scientist, there is no way that I could escape the power of creation that speaks daily. But you know what? What's amazing is that David puts this not in scientific language. He puts it in very poetic language. And he says, the sun is like it's breaking forth like a bridegroom. Now guys don't look good very often, but on their wedding day, they're breaking forth like, check me out. And he says, this, he uses these metaphors of language. 
And I love how G.K. Chesterton puts it. You have to listen to this because God is, he's a creative God. He's made you to be creative. And he speaks. He says, Chesterton says, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life, because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, and therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. So when you throw them up in the air, they say, do it again, do it again. My daughter, all the time, do it again. I'm so tired. No, I don't want to. Do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again. And to the sun, and every evening, do it again. To the moon, and it may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Do you like that? But you know what? I want to say that the word of God is not only perfect, And it's not only powerful, it's also power personally. Because David says, yeah, creation's amazing. And the sun and moon and stars are amazing. But then in verse 7, he changes his whole theme. And he says, but the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. The heavens and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my word shall remain forever. Not a jot or a comma or a a mark of this word that's been written will ever be removed from my book, Jesus says. Why? Because God speaks. God wrote a book and it speaks of Christ. And when David reads this book, it's powerful to him personally. Look what he says. It's powerful enough to revive my soul. You know, creation is beautiful. It's amazing. But it can't revive your soul. Not forever. You need a word from God. You need someone from the outside to come into you and say, I'm here for you. I know you. I've made you. You belong to me. And when David reads the law of the Lord, which is perfect, he says, it revives my soul. In verse eight, he says, it brings joy to my heart. My wife and I had dinner with a wonderful couple this past week. And they were telling us about their pain of losing a child many times and then losing their child after it was born, their firstborn. And they told us how it was the word of God that brought them peace over and over and over again. The skeptic says, how can the word of God give you peace? The Bible says, God has to remove the veil from your heart and from your eyes and mind to understand that God wrote a book and it's perfect. And David says, it revives my soul. It brings me joy. And he says, Verse 8b, the commands of the Lord are clear. Listen, it gives me insight for living. It helps me live skillfully. It helps me not live like a fool. 
Because left to myself, I would live like a fool. But David says, it gives me skill, insight for life. Do you want to live life skillfully? David says, God wrote a book and it's perfect and it's powerful. The reverence of the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. And look what he says in verse 10. And because of that, they're more desirable than gold, even finest gold and sweeter than honey, even from the dripping of the honeycomb. Even, and by them, you warn me. Your servant is warned. And in keeping them, those who obey the word of God find great reward. But it's the law of the Lord that breaks him though because it's perfect. Because God, who's holy, wrote a book and when he reads it, it breaks his heart because he says, like you and I, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Paul the apostle says, I thought I was so self-righteous as a Pharisee. Some of you you think because you are able to keep rules, that's why you're able to have favor with God. It's not. David says, if it wasn't though for the law of God, I would not have known. Because, yeah, I didn't drink or smoke or go with people that did. But if it wasn't for the law of God, I would not have known that I was guilty of gross covetousness. The respectable sins live in the church, don't they? Sins like jealousy, anger, pride, selfish ambition. And David says, how can I know all these sins in my heart? He says, cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep me from deliberate sins. Of course, those things that I would normally run to. But then he says, keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. And then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. When you experience the power of the written word of God, you listen, eyes up here, please. We're almost through. You come face to face with the perfect living God and what you realize is he is too holy for your eyes to behold. That's why men, when they meet God in the, word, with the written word of God, what do they do? They fall on their face and say, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And that's why C.S. Lewis says, how can David say that the strict rules of God are sweet like honey? Now, I've never used a prop ever. This is my first time. <laughs> but did you know that at times, they say some of the rabbis, when they were teaching their children the laws of God, they would take honey and, and dip it on their tongue while they read scripture so that they would always know God's word is sweet. How can David say the law of God, which condemns him as a sinful man and wicked and evil, how can the law of God be sweet? 
It's because, David says, not only is the word of God, do we see his glory in creation. Not only do we see his wisdom in the written word. It's perfect. It's powerful. We see his love and his redemption. Look what he says here. He closes it out and he says, Lord, (laughs) and you know what, by the way, now that he sees the word of God, the word of God, he no longer calls him God, Elohim, the big guy upstairs. Verse one, he changes the word to, to Yahweh, Lord, the becoming one. And he says, now, you're not just my Lord and you're not just God, you're my friend. You're my redeemer. You're my rock. You're the strong one. Verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, oh Lord, may it be pleasing to you, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How can David say it revives his his soul? How can he say it's like honey? Because it's not just the nature of the book that's powerful or the power of the book that changes him. It's the author of the book. This book, God wrote this book and it's all about Jesus. And where you have failed to keep the law of the Lord and where you've walked, as the psalmist says, with those who are are, uh, ungodly and wicked and where you and I have scoffed, Jesus Christ bled scripture. He meditated on scripture. He loved the law of the Lord. You see, this book is about Christ. It's about how Jesus perfectly kept the words of God, how Jesus perfectly obeyed the words of God, and they were beautiful to him. They were sweet to him, so much so that when they stuck him on the cross, what came out was the prophecy of scripture. In the garden, he crawls out to his father of scripture. In temptation, he quotes scripture. He bled it for you because you have not kept it, because you're guilty. Because like David, you and I, we say, how can I know all the sins that lurk in my heart? It's sweet though to me because of my redeemer. You see, if you just love this book, if at the end of this God story, you just love a book, you're gonna be a self-righteous, know-it-all, judgmental, maybe even depressed and, and deplorable person. I don't love this book. I love the author of this book. And it's the book I love that's sweet that takes me to the author who's done it all for me. So how can we apply this? Like David, you need to taste the sweetness. See, the reason why I showed that to you was because Jonathan Edwards in his uh, sermon, uh, A Divine and Supernatural Light, he says in another work that the key marks of revival that he saw was that the word of God came in and changed people. People got the word into their lives. They didn't just master a book. The book mastered them, took them to their savior. But he says in a divine and super light, see, I can tell you that honey is sweet, but until you've tasted it for yourself, it makes no difference. Paul, David says, Taste the sweetness of the word. God's story, the word of God, not just the book, 
but the living word of God, Christ. Rejoice in the fact that he has tasted it for you. He tasted bitterness on the cross and being rejected by his father for your sin and mine so that you could taste what is sweet. And unless this is taking you to Jesus, it won't be sweet. Taste what's sweet to spit out what's bitter. What does that mean? It means the bitterness that you find in your heart that comes up, the self-absorption that we find in our lives, the anxiety and worry that you deal with, the pride that you wrestle with, the covetousness and struggle of the soul, the self-righteousness. Right now, Jesus wants you to taste the sweetness of his word and, like he says, take it, eat it. This is symbolic of my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you taste of the juice that's symbolic of the blood that he shed to wash you clean and you taste of the bread that's symbolic of the bread of the word of God which Jesus says, you shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes forth particularly from Jesus himself. He's the living word. Take it, eat it. Taste the sweetness. Spit out the bitterness. Understand that Jesus' righteousness covers you, those of you who have placed your faith in Christ. He sees you not just as forgiven as a result, he sees you as lovely and righteous and whole. God wrote a book and it's all about him. And in this book, he shows us also, not only himself, but our true self, who we long to become. Father, we thank you for your words and for your Holy Spirit. Make this honey sweet to us now, Lord. Let us taste and see that the Lord, he is good. We exalt the name of Christ in this place. I encourage you to come forward. If you would like to receive prayer, you can do so. The prayer team's to my right and my left. Come forward, taste of what we call communion, the bread, the body broken on your behalf, the blood spilled for you. By faith, be washed, spit out the bitterness. You can come forward, you can stay, you can kneel, you can stand, you can stay on your face if you like. In Jesus' name, amen.